On Marshall Street, just a few metres from the Spirit of Soho mural, is a 16-storey concrete tower block. Several houses were demolished to make way for its construction in the mid-1960s, one of which was the birthplace of today's subject. At position number three on the mural, it's the poet, painter, heretic and visionary after whom the tower block is named, William Blake. Born in 1757, William Blake was considered to be mad by many people during his lifetime, and although he managed to earn a living from his day job as an engraver, he died relatively poor in 1827, never having received the adulation or financial rewards enjoyed by many of his contemporaries. In modern times, however, Blake has taken on an almost mythical status, with some people regarding him almost as a prophet. He lived most of his life in the crowded, filthy streets of Soho and Lambeth, and yet his head was filled with angels, saints and gods. Blake lived in tumultuous times and was deeply affected by the revolutions in France and America. He was a religious maverick, a Christian who hated the Church of England and invented his own system of belief, and a political maverick he was once arrested for uttering seditious and treasonous insults against the king. Unlike many of the eminent artists, poets and thinkers in the mural, William Blake does not have a grand final resting place in Westminster Abbey or some such place. In fact, the exact location of the grave in which Blake and his beloved wife Catherine are buried together was unknown until 2006. The inscription on a headstone in Bunhill Field Cemetery in the glamorous and leafy Old Street roundabout area informed the public that William and Catherine were simply buried nearby. After exhaustive research, two Blake enthusiasts managed to identify the correct plot and in 2018, a new headstone paid for by the Blake Society was unveiled. My guest for this episode is a trustee of that Blake Society, the cartoonist and illustrator John Reardon. I had planned to meet up with John to hear all about William Blake over a curry and a beer at the Masala Zone restaurant next door to William Blake House. As it turned out though, for Covid reasons we decided to talk over Zoom instead, and this is what accounts for the unusual sound quality and the occasional glitches on the line. I began by asking John Reardon how he had first discovered Blake and what it is about him that has made him such a devotee. One of the ways I came to William Blake originally was through a Blur B-side, which was the B-side to Girls and Boys, and they nicked some Blake lyrics for that song. But once I'd actually read about Blake and, and read Blake himself, it's a number of things. He, he's a rebel, sort of always re rebelling against authority and any kind of system that he's not invented himself. That's sort of true politically as much as spiritually. Another crucial thing for me, so I've ended up as an illustrator and as a teenager when I was getting into Blake, it was very exciting for me that he was a poet, but as much a painter and uh, an illustrator. And in fact, his bread and butter was always as an engraver. He never really made any uh, money from being a painter. That was just very much his sort of personal passion. And to some extent, he's become, for me, the kind of patron saint of uh, being a freelance artist, really, juggling the sort of paying gigs with your own passion projects that consume the rest of your time. <laughs> Could you give me a little, if you can, a little potted biography of him? We know he's born... It's not actually on Marshall Street, is it? It's on Broad Street. That's right, yeah. So it was the, it was the corner house, number 28 Broad Street. And he was born in uh, uh, November 1757. Soho born and bred. His uh, parents were both Londoners. He spent 
the whole of his life, uh, apart from three years in London. Uh, so very much a kind of London poet and artisan and, uh, and craftsman. So he was uh, in the family home until I think at the age of 14, he was apprenticed to an engraver in um, Covent Garden, essentially. And he, when he would have gone to, to live with the engraver for seven years and learn the tools of his trade, and then returns to the family home and um, enrolled at the, the relatively new uh, Royal Academy. We did Hogarth a few weeks ago, and he was an engraver, and he's an yes. apprentice engraver. Was it a common thing? I suppose that's how books were printed, wasn't it? So people, lots yeah. of people were doing it. And also, I think, how a lot of people saw art. Because if you think about it, so Blake, for example, early in life, uh, became a big fan of Michelangelo and uh, Raphael and other um, Renaissance uh, Italian artists. But he never would have seen those paintings because they're all in Florence or Rome. So actually, he was seeing those painters through the medium of someone else's engraving. So he's sort of a generation later than Hogarth. And I think partially through the um, efforts of people like Hogarth, engraving had itself become a kind of growth industry, if you like, at that stage. And there was an appetite both for the sort of arty and also, as you say, for book illustrations and more um, scurrilous uh, street art, if you like, uh, sort of chapbooks and uh, pamphlets. At the point at which he got into it, uh, it, it looked like quite a promising um, career. And didn't he invent some new process as well? So it's a kind of relief printing where the, the part that you actually end up printing from is higher than the background plate. Supposedly, the distinct method that he invented was brought to him in a dream by his deceased younger brother. He's quite well known for having these visions. And one of the questions I sent you in the emails back and forth, was he, wasn't he just a bit mad? And I think that was how he was seen at the time. And he was quite open about having these visions. And could you, could you talk about those a bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that my short version to was he mad would be no. Uh, <laughs> he certainly was regarded as such by some of his contemporaries and by others as, as very eccentric. He did indeed see visions. Um, he would walk out from Soho out into um, what were then the kind of villages and woods of, of South and North London. And he apparently on Peckham Rye saw a tree full of angels. There's another story about him seeing God coming up to the window of 28 Broad Street when he was four and God appearing at the window and frightening him, as he might. Well, yeah. <laughs> and, um, and as you say, all through his life, he would say that he had uh, visions and um, sometimes characters from history or from, from biblical history or from myth and, in, and indeed conversed with them. And they're very um, clear, and, weren't they? I mean, he, he saw them as clear as day yeah. in the tree in Peckham Rye and that kind of thing. And I think this is, this is one of the answers to, to was he mad, was that he wasn't a helpless victim of nightmarish visions or, or hallucinations which struck him. Part of Blake's whole sort of self-invented spiritual and religious system or outlook is he basically thinks our perceptions as humans, our senses, are diminished and, and have been sort of closed down. And actually, for whatever reason, his perceptions and ability to see things seem to be wider, if you like, and, and he could see these things. It's also as much a sort of um, outward projection rather than just receiving visions. It's all to do with, with his imagination and 
one of the bits for Blake is, is the primacy of the human imagination, which doesn't mean to see that he's just sort of inventing things and going, oh, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be nice to see something now? It's, it's a slightly different way of, of seeing the world and existence. So the visions were not being sent to him by some outside power god or whatever it might be they they were coming from within and that was okay by him it's sort of both there's a story from late in his life about uh, him talking to a to a woman at a a sort of soiree and he'd seen some angels walking in the the corner of this meadow and this woman said to him oh sounds delightful um where can i go to see these angels and he smiled and then just pointed at his head (laughs) Um, so he he knows it's 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 all in his head, but then you know everything is all in our heads anyway. There is no outside of your head, and that doesn't mean to say it's not real. There's another great story that I like um, about him him talking to this journalist, and the journalist was trying to to sort of squirrel out what his religious beliefs were, and he asked him about his views of of Jesus, and Blake said, "Ah, um, oh, well, Jesus Christ is the only Lord God," and then paused and then said, "But so am I." And so are you. <laughs> so it's sort of coming from within, but it's also us, and it's all, it's all, and it's from outside, and it's all the same thing, really. During his lifetime, he wasn't particularly successful, was he? And he wasn't much on the art scene or much in the poetry scene, but he he's was, since um, become massively revered. He's a, there is a real Blake industry. There's a Blake society as well, of which you are a trustee. <laughs> That's right. Yes. So yeah. how did that come about, and and who were the, were there certain people who promoted that? You're right. He was. As an engraver, he was for a, for a while reasonably successful, and then I think as he kind of fell out of fashion, and probably to do with him becoming um, increasingly sort of irascible, that he he sort of became less financially successful at the end of his life. He was he was pretty poor, and him and his wife Catherine were living in fairly um, straitened circumstances. But yeah, later on, uh, people found stuff. I think particularly in the in the poetry at first, in the writings that uh, spoke to them and I think spoke to later ages uh, the view that we have now of uh, religion or spiritual beliefs is that it's up to you right it's uh, I suppose it's an individualist approach that you you figure out what you want to believe in and, and what makes sense to you and that is what he did he was he was a, a deeply um, religious person and artist but it's a sort of a church of one. It became this sort of increasingly complicated personal system of, of mythology that was really his, his attempt to figure out and describe the universe and, and what it meant to be a human, but also what it meant to be alive in, in the, the time in which he found himself. He was very political, wasn't he? I suppose now we'd say left wing. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think that that, that that sort of way of thinking quite applies to then, although it's tempting to to say that. But um, but he was certainly um, fired up by the by the French Revolution at first. His poem "London" is quite blatantly political and anti-establishment. People talk about Jerusalem all the time, and actually, I think for me as a stupid layperson, Jerusalem needs to be explained to me. Mm. That poem "London," I can read, and it's. It's an angry poem about social conditions and, you know. So London, which is maybe my favourite Blake poems, certainly is kind of my favourite of his, his shorter poems, is from um, collection Songs of Innocence and Experience. They're almost like pop songs, I think, because they're just so direct. And London in particular, there's so much going on in it, but it's only uh, four verses long. Shall I read it? Yeah, do, yeah. It, so here we go. 
I wander through each chartered street near where the chartered Thames does flow and mark in every face I meet marks of weakness, marks of woe. In every cry of every man, in every infant's cry of fear, in every voice, in every ban, the mind-forged manacles I hear. How the chimney sweepers cry, every blackening church appalls, and the hapless soldier's sigh runs in blood down palace walls. But most through midnight streets I hear how the youthful harlot's curse blasts the newborn infant's tear and blights with plagues the marriage hearse. Not a love letter to London, is it? Well, it kind of is. That's the funny <laughs> thing. I think um, there's a side to Blake which is about angels and light and and holiness in in that sense, if you like. And then there's a side to him which is like the Hogarth, uh, Gin Lane and the dirt and the grime. And in fact, I think what makes Blake interesting for me as a London poet is that superimposition, if you like, of the two, particularly his sort of last great big poem, which confusingly is called Jerusalem, but it's not the hymn. Jerusalem, the hymn is actually the preface of Milton, which is his second to last kind of big epic. But Jerusalem is this hundred page lavishly illustrated work, but it contains lots of references to London places Oxford Street and Tyburn and Paddington and King's Cross. But it becomes part of this heightened kind of weird mythic city. And he even, ha- even has a name for this, uh, this sort of strange London of the imagination, which he calls Golganusa. And it becomes part of his kind of strange uh, mythic system. It would be tempting to think of him as, as an early cartoonist. I'm not quite sure he is. I think in some ways Hogarth is a more convincing fit for a a sort of early comic artist. But still, there's something so powerful about the fact that it is artwork and printed words all in on the same sheet. There's an amazing um, online archive that you can compare. Say there are like 20 different versions of London, 20 different kind of printed versions. You can go and line them all up and compare them and see the, the different approaches he took to how he printed them and how he would then paint the the um the printed works to to give different effects and use different colors it's really fascinating and some of these works he continued printing throughout his life so so you can have a look at versions which are 30 years apart you know and see how his kind of artistic style of painting had completely changed and how he was applying those changes in technique and, and taste to these to these prints 